Prejudice. Wrote a song about it? Like to hear it? Here it go. Free your mind. Hi, everybody. This is Alicia Halliday. Welcome to the January 17th Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. Today, I have a very special treat. We have two guests from the University of Connecticut who have recently published a systematic review on some of the racial and ethnic differences. And I'm being very broad here. I'm going to ask the authors to narrow it down. Already known in the literature. And they did this through a systematic review, which if any of your any of the listeners out there know, I'm a big fan of, instead of just throwing out every comment or every particular idea or every single concept, you narrow down specific questions and you focus on research papers that address those questions. So it really allows kind of a comprehensive synthesis of what's already been published, because as you know, it's hard to, it's hard to keep up. There's new data being published. There's new findings. Some of it is consistent. Some of it is inconsistent. Um, and some of it answers the question of interest and some of it answers a different question of interest. And so um, I am going to now turn it over to our two guests. First, Carla Rivera Figueroa. I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. Hi everybody, I'm Carla Rivera Figueroa. I'm Puerto Rican uh, by ethnicity. I study at the University of Connecticut in my sixth year. I'm recently working on my dissertation, which is sort of like a follow-up to this systematic review, um, more of uh, sort of expanding on some of the findings that we saw on the review. Uh, my interest is uh, broadly on healthcare disparities and how to minimize these, especially for underrepresented minorities, uh, and really push the field forward to, to really address some of the needs that sort of uh, pressing, especially um, now that we're having sort of like a search in ethnic diversity and we're less and less uh, sort of one big group and more of a uh, diverse group. So we definitely need to get ourselves into a position where we can handle um, the diversity that exists. And I think some of this review addresses how to do that. So we're excited to hear um, your ideas on that. Um, so our other podcast guest is Inga Marie Eichstee. She's also at the University of Connecticut, and I will let her introduce herself and her role. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Alicia, for um, having us. It's really great to be on the podcast today. Um, and I think both Carla and I and our co-author, Nana Marfo, are really, really um, proud of this paper and very excited about the follow-up um, study that um, was motivated by the work. So uh, we're really delighted to talk with you all about this. My own focus of research is uh, broadly on autism and language and communication skills and uh, brain development and how those things intersect. I do work with a, many different graduate students as part of various training grants and training programs. Um, and it's been really wonderful to work with Carla and kind of have this, this focus on stigma and, and really thinking carefully and deeply about the unmet needs of a whole huge segment of our population. So on that note, thank you. Thank you for doing this review. I like to brag about the one systematic review I was involved in 
and how I will never do it again because how, because of how much work it is. <laughs> so um, we really, as a community, appreciate this effort. Why don't you, Carla, explain why this particular review um, and what were the questions that you were aiming to answer? Because again, it wasn't just a review of everything, but specific questions. Yes. Yeah, so basically what inspired this review, you know, personally is my own ethnicity and identity and some of my experiences working with autism in Puerto Rico, where we face most of, you know, the topics discussed here. Um, and I think that is true not only in Puerto Rico, but also in the United States. Also working on the AESD field, I started to notice um, that we are really... Our samples are pretty majority white. There's really not a lot of representation on other race and ethnicities. So there's really a big, huge gap on how much we know about the rest of the population. So I really wanted to address that gap and provide sort of like an overview of what's being done, what has been done, how are these factors influencing healthcare use for these communities, and um, more importantly, how, how we can address this responsibly and, and do our best both as researchers and as clinicians to, to really push, push the field forward and address those needs. Um, so some of the uh, questions that I had were, what are some of those factors that are uh, specific or not specific? Uh, we, we really don't, don't really know because of the lack of research, uh, what part of these factors are sort of shared by everyone and what, which factors are, are specific to certain communities. Um, so I wanted to know which are the factors that are really influencing uh, access to services for uh, these two particular communities, the, the Latinx and the black communities which are two, you know, the two biggest uh, minority groups in the United States. So it was, it was, like you said, a really um, hard and difficult process just because of the lack of research in the field. I think there has been a search on research on this topic, which I'm really excited about. There's, there needs to be more, but I think uh, the way that I approached the systematic review at first was to um, first start broad and, and, and see what was out there. So, you know, see what has been done, what's the research focused on uh, in this community. And from there, pull out some key factors that were um, sort of repetitive across the literature and communities and participants kept bringing up these factors and, and, and talking about them as sort of like big part of their experience with autism. So then I narrow it down to a set of factors that I was then going to look in depth in the literature and see uh, what has been done to address those specific factors. So I, the way that I chose those factors were both things that were discussed as already having some type of influence on healthcare disparities, things like stigma, and then other uh, factors that I think culturally are important uh, for this community. So I narrowed it down to sort of what are the beliefs as it pertains to the causes and course of ASD, um, what's the sort of level of ASD awareness and ASD knowledge and, uh, and sort of recognition of those early signs um, in these communities, 
of course, the stigma piece, which I think it's it's a huge part of it, not only because of the autism sort of diagnosis that carries with it its own sort of stigmatizing behaviors and and it's difficult from that side of things but also as an ethnic minority or a racial minority you have that stigmatizing piece on top of that so I think for this community specifically that's that's really important for us to to address uh, also the family impact of autism and how it potentially differs across groups. And then some of those protective and cultural factors that are, are commonly referred to as things as uh, religion, um, family-centered values, and gender roles. And then uh, last, the patient-provider relationship and uh, how that impacts the experience of these families as well. So I narrowed it down to those sort of six factors and then uh, did an in-depth literature review on those. If I can add an amplifying point to that um, summary, that lovely summary, you know, we know that there are inequities in how people receive services um, and those at inequities seem to really center on, in part, on racial and ethnic differences. That's really well established, but we, we don't really know why. Where do those inequities come from? And uh, we, know to, we need to know why so that we can sort of resolve them and, and decrease those. Then that was the very broad goal of this. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that some of these inequities have been discussed. Everyone has kind of their own ideas about what we can do. So maybe bringing this all together is a good start. So the ones that I think you you listed was um, stigma, awareness and recognition, family impact, cultural and protective factors, patient provider relationships, and then something called causes and course. Can you clarify what you mean by causes and course? I mean, causes may seem a little bit obvious, but what about course? Yeah, that makes sense. That wasn't super clear. <laughs> so basically, these are the beliefs uh, that these groups hold on what are what causes autism and then how sort of autism develops over time. Um, so within the causes, there's things like vaccines or, or traumatic events or genetics or um, sort of like environmental causes. And then within the course piece of it, is it what are the beliefs? It's this sort of like a long-term lifelong disorder or is this something that can be wait and see like if you wait long enough uh, it might go away on its own or which are some some uh, beliefs that some people hold and it can definitely impact how you seek services how you receive services and sort of like the 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 need the perceived need for services Um, so that's what I meant with sort of like beliefs of the causes and the course of the of the disorder. So what did you you find in terms of causes and course and stigma because those two may may co-join. Yes. Um, so in terms of causes, I think there's mixed finding, findings and I think that's um, related to some of the other factors that often interact with race and ethnicity. But broadly speaking, um, within the Latinx and uh, Black communities, 
you know, there seems to be more of a belief that vaccines causes autism. Uh, within the Latinx community, some there's a lot of referring to things like, oh, autism is caused by bad parenting practices or autism is caused by traumatic events or, or sadness during pregnancy, which are stigmatizing on itself. And I think that contributes to the stigma piece of it. Um, so some of these beliefs can be helpful, uh, like the belief that this is something that we can treat, that we have power over, um, you know, some, some sense of power over the course of the disorder, which I think research with the Black community suggests that, that they, they do see that as true, that they do have some, some control over it and some power over it, which is, which is really positive. And then there's other beliefs that aren't as, as sort of conducive to, to um, treatment or, or, or could be conducive to, you know, stigma and, and senses of uh, guilt and things could definitely uh, deter parents from, from seeking some services. So especially given that some of these beliefs are reinforced uh, both by family members and providers uh, sometimes. So there was a lot of families saying that, uh, you know, they felt like providers were minimizing their parenting practices or, or sort of taking more of the um, discipline approach or, and, and same as, same with sort of like family members. And part of why there's some mixed findings is, you know, there's other factors apart from uh, the race and ethnicity that, that do influence. So most of the, um, the studies that were included were with immigrants, there was uh, low socioeconomic status, um, the Latinx groups described, there were, it was mostly Mexican um, with, in terms of acculturation. Um, so I think there's it, it's complicated. Um, so we can't just assume that everyone holds these beliefs, but there's definitely a, a recurring theme that uh, things like trauma and vaccines and parental practices are are somehow impacting uh, or causing autism. Can you define Latinx for the um, community yes. of listeners that may not be familiar with that term? Absolutely. I think um, it's it's a term that, um, you know, we're, we've been trying to to sort of introduce to be more um, it's a more gender neutral term, more more so than Latino, which is masculine, Latina, which is uh, female. And then you have the non-binary folks sort of like not feeling represented by the term. Um, there's also some confusion uh, around sort of Latina versus Hispanic and the, the general concept. It's so these are all terms that that were sort of created uh, as a need as the need to sort of classify people emerged. Um, so I think there's different levels to which people feel represented by these terms. Uh, I think there some people don't like the Latinx because it's not um, sort of semantically or uh, correct or or it's kind of difficult. Um, so there's a lot of 
I think, debate when it comes to these terms, but I chose the term Latinx because I think it represents more of the uh, Latin American uh, sort of composition of my group because I'm not I'm not including Hispanics from let's say Spain or or other Spanish speaking countries I'm really limiting to Latin American countries um, so that's why I chose the term uh, Latinx over Hispanic because Hispanic it's sort of everyone that speaks Spanish and Latinx is more of a it has more of a Latin American feel to it. Fair enough. I just wanted to make sure that listeners who may not be as culturally competent as as other people kind of understood what, what when you use that term, what it meant. Dr. Argisti, do you have any comments? Um, I think, you know, people are going to be happy or unhappy with whatever terminology is chosen. Um, and that's part of the rich tapestry uh, that makes up our, our uh, linguistic world. Um, and the, I think my understanding is that Latinx is um, to date used by relatively fewer people, but I suspect it's going to be growing in um, sort of familiarity and popularity because it's one that really may, maybe captures the, the sort of experiences. Um, a lot of people may feel at home in that term. Um, but it's I, I defer to you know people from that from that culture to say what what they want to what they would like to call themselves. So you identified these six factors, and this question goes to both of you. Um, so we'll start with Carla, and then I'll give time for Dr. Agisti. But you know there are these six really. I, I don't know if you can rank them. I'm I'm asking you to kind of pick the low-hanging fruit where research scientists, clinicians, the community, how we can help. I think, uh, I think there's three sort of uh, factors that I would focus on. Uh, one of them, it's the stigma piece of it. Um, I think that's, you know, fairly uh, documented, at least for the group of people that participated in, in these studies. I think it's a, it's a real factor that really deters people from services, especially if this, uh, you know, if this stigma is coming from healthcare providers. And that leads me to the second factor, which I think it's, it's sort of pressing. And this is the factor of the patient-provider relationship. And that's something that we as clinicians and researchers can really do something about. I think uh, there are limitations to, in terms of, of, of the knowledge base that we're working on, we don't have a lot of knowledge uh, on how to really be culturally competent. This is something that has been sort of emphasized more and more recently. So there's not really necessarily like a punitive or, you know, like an expectation that everyone needs to be competent, but I think there is an ethical obligation to, to move in that direction. So I think the patient-provider relationship, it's, it's key, especially since, you know, difficult relationships with a provider can really just deter the whole treatment process. If you're not feeling hurt, if you're not feeling supported, if you're not feeling like your provider, it's um, sort of appreciating your, your background or your beliefs um, that really can put a hole in the whole treatment process. That could be someone who, who came in and never came back uh, sort of thing. And then the knowledge, I think this, um, 
these communities, um, because of the racial and ethnic relationship uh, that sadly exists with things as education and, and low SES, I think that these communities are especially vulnerable to not have access to information, especially within the Latinx, if you, there are linguistic factors as well that can really uh, impact the access to information and without sort of like an ASD awareness or an understanding that this is something that that exists, even if you're not an expert, I think it's really easy for for parents to not cash certain signs or or or, or not really understand what's going on. Um, so I think there's really needs to be some educational efforts for the information to be uh, distributed equally across communities and not only within certain communities. So we have to make efforts to, to educate like a broader portion of, of, of the um, demographic composition, I guess. If I can add to that, I think there are two things that um, healthcare providers can, can do differently, potentially, um, to enhance the the quality and, and reduce the disparity of their services. Um, and I say this, you know, well aware that healthcare providers are, you know, overburdened and super busy and doing their very best, right? They're people who care about their patients. None of them are ill-intentioned, um, but there, I think two things that, that um, are sort of action items that seem really tractable. Um, one is to, uh, do better in developing community partnerships with groups in the communities that they're serving so that um, the, the healthcare providers can build some relationships both with people from, from these communities and also with sort of leaders and elders and movers and shakers in the community um, mm -hmm. so, that, so that they can, that will enhance the, the sort of quality of the trust and the relationship that families might have in those healthcare providers. Um, I think a second step that healthcare providers um, should all really consider adopting is to stop relying on their own intuitions and instincts as they do diagnostic assessments. Um, when they see a kid who may have autism, uh, they should use validated instruments that are appropriate for the communities. Um, so, uh, and that extends even so far as um, just a preliminary well-child visit where the parent is saying, gosh, my child doesn't talk very much. What's going on? Give them an MCHAT, right? You, you, you need to use an instrument that is going to be reliable and efficient because the research is clear from this literature review that healthcare providers, their instincts and intuitions are not good enough um, to, to be reliable in, in making diagnosis, um, especially when people are coming from a, a pretty different background or um, uh, especially for many kinds of diverse community members. Um, so I think the third thing that seems like a really good action item that seems like something the Autism Science Foundation could help with in particular um, uh, this is something that Carla talked about, the, the need for better materials, educational materials. Um, 
And, you know, we need people that are really good with media, social media and Mm -hmm. videos and so on to to create materials that are um, sort of culturally appropriate. And it's something that's appropriate for a Mexican community is, is, um, as I've learned, is not going to be appropriate, even if it's in Spanish for somebody from some other kind of um, cultural background. So, so we really need materials that are um, using the right vocabulary and, and not just created by some intern who went to Google Translate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> One of the things I will mention that ASF is trying to do is to focus funding on early career investigators from traditionally underrepresented groups, including Black Americans, as you mentioned, and Latinx. How important is Carla, do you have a thought? I, I mean, I, I would say super important, um, just because, for example, from my own experience, I think, um, you know, if I wouldn't have been given the opportunity to go to the University of Connecticut. I mean, if in, uh, Dr. Ixty wouldn't have given me so much funding, I couldn't have been doing this work. Um, and maybe if I wouldn't have been doing this work, no one else would have been doing this work. Um, so I think um, definitely opening opening doors to not, so the, the community is diversifying. And I think we as a profession should diversify with the community. I I talk here about both Latinx and Black groups. So I brought uh, uh, Nana Marfo to sort of speak for the Black community. And I think it's important for us to have that sort of pool of people and pool of expertise to draw from. And I think funding, it's sort of imperative, especially when you have um, traditionally underserved uh, groups that maybe aren't having the same opportunities, even even on the school level. And then you have other uh, barriers at the um, college level and then other barriers to maybe access some investigation, be involved in different research. So I think that push to to help these uh, individuals to to get to where we need them to get it's it's imperative mm-hmm. that pipeline problem right of just getting more and more people to to enter the pipeline uh, you know at least we have to start these things in high school um, yes. and there's some really wonderful programs out there trying to reach under traditionally underrepresented groups and and get them engaged in research and um, so I think as, as a scientific community, we have to embrace those programs and participate in them, help actively, and, and um, uh, we have to really be, it can't be a lip service thing, right? We have to really uh, actively participate and, and use our time and resources to build the pipeline. Two final questions. My first one is, um, although again, this is not a contest, but were there any striking differences between the Latinx community and the Black American community that you think are worth highlighting? Yes, I think with the research available, there aren't really um, comparative uh, research that could really for sure tell us differences and similarities. 
Um, so I think that's something to be discovered. There's been some efforts to move in the sort of understand more of the Latinx uh, experience. I think we're really, really, really lacking on the Black perspective. Um, I ended up having to sort of include unpublished dif dissertations with that group uh, to have sort of more to draw from because it was just strikingly not not a lot. Um, so I think definitely we can't answer that question. I think there's definitely similarities when it comes to, you know, discriminatory experiences, you know, some of the cultural values, there's some overlap uh, when it comes to sort of like the importance of family. Both groups uh, said we want uh, our family members to be more involved in the process. We really rely on our family members uh, for support, practical support, emotional support. Um, I, I I guess um, I'm going to hypothesize that uh, for the Black community, the, the discrimination part of it, okay. it's going to be higher just because uh, historically the Black community has been a lot more oppressed uh, than the Latinx community. I think both communities could definitely probably say that that their experiences is really tainted by their, not tainted, but shaped by their, their identity. I don't think I have an answer to that, but I think that's to be determined and definitely uh, uh, something that we should really be focusing on because we don't, like you said, what works with one group doesn't work with the other. And we really should stay away from using these terms or, or saying like, you know, all minority groups are the same. There's a lot of variability. Um, there's differences in cultural values. There's a lot of differences that we really need to capture if we're going to be effective. Related to that point, um, I think scientists need to do a much better job of more carefully detailing the participants in research studies. Um, so we can't just have sort of a white Caucasian group and then other, um, or right, we, we, in order to extract information for systematic reviews and, and things like that, we need to have the information about people's race and ethnicity. Um, and so that's, that's one kind of an easy fix to just do better uh, in, that, uh, in that dimension. One thing, Carla, um, that you reported um, in the review that I thought was quite interesting was um, the rather, uh, so in both you know, African-American and Latinx communities, um, they reported a really uh, a sort of a helper effect of being embedded in these, you know, sort of families and community contexts that gave them an awful lot of um, social support and, and that really enriched their experiences and helped decrease parents' experience of um, sort of stigma and, and difficulty and, and challenge, right? A, a burden shared is a uh, that's not the right phrase. I can't remember the, the phrase about a burden shared, but um, is a burden lessened maybe. Um, but, um, but there were still kind of interesting gender role differences in those communities that um, I think are, are kind of interesting to think about. I don't know, Carla, if you want to speak to those a little bit. Yeah, I think um, there aren't a lot of um, 
there isn't a lot of research directly looking at gender differences. So a lot of the information comes from qualitative studies that, uh, you know, touch upon these differences. Uh, when it comes to the Latinx community, it does seem like the, you know, machismo or the sort of, um, I guess the the overvalue of the male figure within the uh, within the community is something that's sort of really present, and it really puts a lot of burden on on the maternal figure. Um, when it comes to the Black Americans, you know, the the one study that that did pro for those gender differences, it seemed like. Uh, you know, there is also gender differences, but in a different sense where the mom with the mother, it's really more focused on providing the training that the kid needs to be independent in life. And then the, the father figure was more uh, of a protective figure and more worried about sort of how do I protect my child from stigma, from racism. Um, and those two there was like a gender role as to what was the the thing that the parent focused on. Um, so I think again we need more more of a research base to to draw more com- conclusions. But it does seem like there are differences in that sense. And for the black community, when when the parents were still together, were mother weren't single mothers, it seemed like they they felt like there was more of a equal distribution of, of labor, um, more so than, than on the Latinx part of things. And just to add one tiny point to that, uh, there's some really low hanging fruit here for um, any students that are looking for a project in that the voices of fathers were almost entirely missing from this, from this work. There's just so little work almost entirely the the data set that Carla accumulated uh, reflected input from moms and we just we hardly know anything about what dads think and feel so um, that that's a really important topic for further research. So what is next? Um, That's my final question. So there's a lot of things to do. It's not just the bird on the 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 shoulders of the three of you that wrote the systematic review, but for you guys, what's next? Um, all right, so I'll go. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Carla. You, I think from go. the uh, <laughs> I think from the research research set of things, I think one really important aspect is what Inga Marie mentioned. Uh, first, we need to recruit a more diverse sample, and then not only to recruit a more diverse sample, be sure that we're characterizing that sample correctly, talking about language dominance, talking about acculturation levels, talking about sort of socioeconomic status, education, um, sort of even where where are these people within their own communities? Are you on a rural area, on an urban area? I think... Um, a good characterization of your sample is going to help with generalization. Um, so we know who are we speaking about when we're sort of discussing uh, the research findings. Um, what else? From the research side of things, I don't know, Ingemarie, if you have any other 
Sure. Well, I think Carla is being a little bit modest. Um, she has a data set in hand that she collected yeah. with the help of uh, Spark. And um, to my mind, it is an incredibly exciting data set um, and is going to be richly informative. Um, she asked families from all across the U.S. and from some of, a few other countries about their experiences with their healthcare providers and their experiences of stigma um, and their knowledge about autism and their child's treatment history and current abilities. And um, it's a, a really, really uh, sort of well-rounded data set with a huge number of participants. Um, it's something like um, 800 families participated, including um, 250 Latinx families, and I think something like 175 African American families. And um, I, I really, I think this is going to give us um, a, a kind of quantitative um, experience reported out from, from families um, about all the issues that we've been talking about today. Um, so keep your uh, ears, your eyes peeled and your ears tuned for uh, results from that. Really, I think what's going to be very important work. Absolutely. Please let me know when that article is out and um, we will definitely highlight it because this is an issue I think a lot of people are trying to address. Do you guys have any last things that you want to share with the audience that I didn't ask in a question or didn't get pulled out? that we could, that we, that, that our listeners should know about? Yeah. One thing that sort of came to mind that I wanted to highlight when it comes to research is that we usually, when we think about sort of cultural values, like gender roles, religion, or family, we, we think about sort of minoritized groups. And if we're only asking about cultural values from minoritized groups, um, we, we aren't really getting at sort of there are, are there differences how much of an impact are these things having because we we can with doing this work we really have to be careful and 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 thoughtful about the questions that we're asking and not introducing biases when we're asking the questions mm -hmm. for example um if we're going to talk about religion, then let's talk about religion across groups. And what are these groups uh, saying about religion? If we're going to talk about family-centered values, let's talk about how are all of these groups involved or not involved family members. Because uh, sometimes when we cite uh, sort of like the social cultural values or so social cultural barriers, uh, we run the risk of sort of pathologizing uh, differences. And, and I think we really have to be careful when we talk about cultural values and groups to make sure that, that we're doing so in a non-biased way. Um, so I think that's another piece of, of, of how we could uh, sort of move towards uh, researching this type of things, because sometimes it's really easy to, to do some harm unintentionally if you're not being very careful about, you know, checking yourself for your own biases, checking yourself at every step of the process so that you're um, having, oh, and that's the other thing. Um, 
community uh, informed research, sort of like coming up with research questions from the community, sort of like a more bottom down, um, bottom up approach than a top down approach, like really going into the community and seeing what are these communities facing. Um, sort of like right now I'm in Puerto Rico and, and I'm really interested in, in knowing what barriers they're facing because I think that's really gonna inform what I do next. Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, assumptions are a quick way to sort of get to answers, but sometimes they can be really uh, dangerous. So you got to make sure that we're communicating with the communities that we're studying continuously and sort of like, what do you think about this question? What do you think about this question or this approach or the other approach? Um, so we're really doing things responsibly. Not We have to do the research, definitely, but we have to do it responsibly. And though I, it's hard to add anything to that, that was so um, so eloquent. Um, one, I, I, as a as an educator, right? I'm a I'm a teacher, a professor at a university, and so I'm very persuaded about the power and the impact potentially of education. Um, and I feel like the the uh, our ability to educate families to better understand early symptoms, red flags, the course, um, is it worth pursuing a diagnosis or treatment for a, a child? Um, I think it, we could have a huge impact potentially on a lot of lives if we were ever better able to um, better educate families about autism. And this to me feels like a place where um, that's really ripe for partnerships for with multiple disciplines. Um, you know, as a, a psychologist, I have some particular skills, but they don't involve graphic arts, for example, or, <laughs> uh, or messaging, right? How to be brief and concise. Clearly, that's, a, that's a, a, not a strength of a lot of psychologists. And, um, you know, so uh, working with epidemiologists and people in graphic arts and design and, um, you know, lots of, pub, you know, public health and lots of professions to design better educational materials um, is, I, I think, uh, that that's such an exciting opportunity and, and is has such a potential for a big impact. Not that the responsibility is all on families to learn more, you know, healthcare providers, scientists, all the rest of us have a huge responsibility to do better. Um, but I feel like that is one place where we could make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Those are great ideas. So thank you both so much for joining today's podcast. And I know that we'll be hearing more from you because this is just the beginning. Um, and thank you both for engaging in what some people may believe is the thankless task, which are these systematic reviews, but really critical because they really pull together the known literature in really cohesive ways around particular questions when you know, you can read something here and then you read a couple years later here and, you know, things get lost. And then, you know, you really need these, these kind of cohesive summaries. So thank you both very much. And I look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you so much for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Yes, it was lovely to talk with you, Alicia. Thank you. Here you go. Free your mind.